Dan, welcome, man. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being our second guest on the DAP Dialogue podcast, where we attempt to deconstruct what makes a great Web3 product. And yeah, uh, Dan here is joining us from Rhino.fi. So I'll just give you the stage to tell us a little bit about what Rhino is, what your role is in there, and why you think your guys are a great product. Um, sure. So um, here at Rhino, essentially, we focus on making DeFi easier to use, and particularly right now focusing on helping users navigate the numerous chains and layer twos that exist out there and making it sort of possible to use this ecosystem. Um, and our most popular feature uh, is our bridge uh, that allows users to move funds easily from one blockchain to another very uh, quickly um, and easily. Right now, it's one of the more uh, popular bridges. We've had about half a million users in November um, already, um, and, and, and that keeps growing. Um, I myself am uh, one of the founders of Rhino, and my role currently is, is the chief product officer. So that's why I love talking about products and how we build them. I think, uh, well, the obvious question here is, what, what, what do you think makes your bridges so popular? Um, I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of bridges out there and as a concept, it seems simple. Um, but what makes the Rhino bridge great is, um, a, it works. It always works. It works reliably. Uh, it works very quickly. Um, but we also care about our users, um, very deeply. So, um, not only do, do we express that in things like, our customer support that it's like always live and you know if, if anything happens people can um can speak with us so kind of like a web to um level of service but internally we always speak with users we always want to hear about uh what their pain points are what they're doing and like we're updating the product all the time like literally twice a week there would be upgrades uh and you know whatever we hear from our, from our users that we think is important to um to fix we do that Actually, one of our internal company values is uh, what we call hustling for our users. So if we see any way out there in the industry to make our product better for our users, give them better opportunities, save them money on gas, make the experience more robust or whatever, we we do that. And usually, I think um, it's also inter interesting to, to mention that, of course, you guys take the segregator approach to... To DeFi, so you're effectively trying to cover a lot of ground, and I reckon when you're trying to do that, it must be kind of hard to do the type, the type of thing you were mentioning: uh, user interviews, finding users, finding reliable sources of uh, qualitative information. Um, can you tell us a bit more about your process to do that? Because I imagine on the quantitative side the information is pretty straightforward to get this being a financial product, but I reckon the other side must, might be a bit tricky in Web3. Yeah. So I think in Web3, it is different than Web2, but I wouldn't say it's worse because on one hand, yeah, we do have this a little bit like anonymous attitude um, that, you know, it's not standard for people to leave their like emails or, or ways of contacting or going face to face. But what we have seen is that with 
um, users that have come and had good experience with our platform, uh, it is very easy to reach out to them and schedule interviews and speak with them. And like, you know, we're still a community of early adopters. So people mm -hmm. genuinely love talking about this stuff. Um, so on the user interview side, we have found it uh, possible to get in touch with people, talk to them. Now, it's less easy to find people that haven't liked your product or that are kind of cold, which is also really valuable. Uh, finding of people course. that are seeing for the first time or people that haven't liked it and bounced, that, you know, that's almost more valuable. But those ones are kind of hard to reach. In Web2, there are tools that help you do that. In Web3, not so much yet. Um, the other, the other side of things is the other side of things is the vast amount of quantitative data, right? We have this is a unique industry where you have literally the user history of all users uh, when they come on your platform, which is which is crazy when you think about it. Like no, no, no one else has that. Yeah. Um, but it has the unique challenges of just the vast, um, the just vast volume and how do you how do you analyze that? So with some, um, yeah, we if you if you figure out how to sort of adapt that to your to your use case, um, that can also be uh, that can also be really really powerful and. Uh, help like segment users uh, and understand their behaviors better. And of course, we're not trying to give your competitors as many tools to be as close to you as possible, but uh, obviously that's the goal of the podcast. So would you mind sharing a bit? How do you find and talk to these users that are a bit colder or a yeah. bit less warm to to your product or their experience? Yeah, sure. Um well, to be honest, just just to mention about our competitors, um, you know, we're now kind of like a year into a bear market, and mm -hmm. it has been quite tough. So I think the competitors that are around are quite good. Um, I think that's kind of one of the benefits of sort of playing this game now. Is it like the other, the other, the other players are also good. Um, so I'm I'm sure that 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 a lot of them are also thinking um, thinking these things. Um, but in terms of how we reach out to people um for us uh the main one is um emails so we uh, on our platform we provide some like content marketing where we gather people's emails on our platform we give people the chance to leave their emails so that's um, a really good way of doing it because it helps us target specific segments um when we when we do our product discovery we're like oh we want to speak to these people uh then we can sort of go ahead and target that um and the other way for us to do that is um, also with like in-platform messages. So we can send in-platform messages to users that meet certain criteria or do certain things, again, to help us with segmentation. So sometimes on Rhino, you could see a pop-up to be like, hey, you know, we would like to hear from you, come and talk to us. And we usually offer um, users some reward for their time because, you know, they're taking some time out of their day, which is valuable to come and speak with us. So that's also part of helping convert some users to do that. You know, the other day I was talking to someone on this podcast about, about precisely that the user service, trying to get information from, from users. And mm. th then I got like an email from a product I do use asking me to do a survey. And yeah. Oh, I, I almost felt like a hypocrite not doing it. So I started taking the, <laughs> yeah. I started taking the survey. And it turns out the survey was insanely long. I didn't finish it. it. It took me, I was going for like five minutes and it just 
wouldn't seem to end and there was not nothing indicating me how long it would take in general so i think that, that speaks to how you, this process also need to be actively designed for for oh, the yeah. user mm -hmm. oh yeah definitely i think we um yeah i think if you put out a survey that's longer than five than five ten minutes to, to fill out um yeah it's unlikely people will do it um one of the ways to solve that is to reward people for doing it. I don't know if the survey did was paid or not, uh, which does help with the conversion. But then that can also bias your data because people might be like, yeah. oh, your product is amazing. Everything's great. Um, because, um, you know, they, they, they're going to get some some rewards for doing that. Um, so or in my case, you just want to click everything as fast as possible to get that Starbucks card. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> And, and there are ways to there are ways to sort of get rid of these biases. Um, like um, sometimes I don't know if you if you look out for it when you fill out these surveys, they might do two things. One of them is they might ask you the same question twice in different ways, mm -hmm. um, or they would have one answer which is like obviously wrong. So for example, sometimes well, I'll give you a recent like so recently we ran an attribution survey asking people like oh how did you find out about Rhino for the first time so we can. Um, sort of see uh, how our channels are working. And for example, we would put one answer, which is a TV advert. And obviously, my product would have a TV advert. Um, but but if you are clicking that, then you did you know that there's something that's something wrong in there that like people, as you said, are just clicking through it or clicking to get it closed or something. Uh, so yeah, you can reduce things like that to correct for, for these things. And um, yeah, 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 but the I think just to take us closer to the to the original topic, which was the bridges. Um, yeah. Besides the bridges, which other products of yours do you think have found a good product market fit? Um, and what do you think they are either feeling to users like they're different enough from competitors or unique if it applies? Yeah, sure. So um, as I mentioned at the beginning, what we aim to do with Rhino is to make uh, DeFi easy to use, mm -hmm. especially abstracting the complexity of cross-chain DeFi. So what we what we have done with our um, sort of swap uh, and yield features on the platform is essentially um, created this place where you can come and you deposit your funds once to Rhino, and then you can swap tokens and invest in yield opportunities regardless of what chain they're on. So you don't need to worry about bridging, where your funds where your funds are, um, paying gas and all that stuff. You just, you know, you, you want to buy tokens that are on Arbitrum, you do that. Or if the best price liquidity is on Arbitrum, you get you, you you buy it from there because we're aggregating. Or if you want to invest in a yield opportunity that's on uh, Polygon, you can do that again, just from one place. And so I think from a product perspective, that really... Uh, you know, I find it like a really, really pleasant experience to use. And it does really simplify the job to be done of buying tokens or the job to be done of investing in yield opportunities. Um, however, we see that as the market shifts, the interest of users shift. So these features have different uh, levels of appeal to users. So mm -hmm. sort of 2021, um, when you know we were kind of in the depths of a bull market, uh, swapping and trading were really popular. Um, now they're not so much. And actually, what we've seen is that um, a lot of the activity now 
is driven by people who are very early adopters who kind of want to explore different products. They want to explore different ecosystems. You know, they see maybe like interesting campaigns and 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 uh, promotions and so on and like interesting new products and they want to go and do that. And of course, airdrop hunting is kind of a motivator for uh, a lot of that activity. And so the interest in swapping or investing in new opportunities on a product that um, makes your life easier isn't that interesting because like you just are not necessarily focused on their life being easier right now. They're focused on exploring these new things that are kind of exciting and and right. um, it might uh, uh, allow you to uh, get an airdrop. And that's where now we're seeing our bridge feature shine, which is now massively taken over the uh, activity on our platform that that's kind of the uh that's the, the flagship now because it allows people that freedom of yeah they they can go whenever they want to to explore and um and enjoy and you know, have a bit of fun in DeFi. Uh, you mentioned airdrop hunters and that's a that, that, that's something that's a bit worrying in my opinion about web3 right now that with so many new super fast l1 l2s all of them kind of like hinting at airdrops you get a lot of fake a lot of fake volume and also a lot of fake um well a lot of bot trading really or a lot mm -hmm. of bot activity because these chains are making it cheaper than ever to just have a bot running all the time trying to farm for the biggest possible airdrop um yeah just want just wondering what runs through your mind when talking about these things or if you have anything that you may want to share with the audience regarding airdrop yeah. good airdrop bad so I think, you know, we're at a place in crypto right now in DeFi, especially like we can't not talk about airdrops. Like uh, it would be silly to pretend that that's not why a lot of users are yeah. doing. Well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think airdrops are very, they're fascinating. They have like different, different faces. I think on one hand, if you look at the very uh, cynical view, it's like, okay, um, there is this sort of game we're playing where you know the everybody's hinting at an airdrop they may or may not happen uh that's why users are doing all this activity it's completely mm -hmm. fake it brings them like no economic value but they're just doing it expecting this reward um the layers themselves are kind of in this race where now they can't not do that because uh it has proven to be one of the biggest sort of acquisition tools and so the the Projects are forced to do that. Uh, then the users are doing it. We're seeing all this fake activity. Um, the projects themselves actually are incentivized to do it because their numbers look really good. So in front of their investors or the public, uh, it's going to look good. So maybe there's a bit of an incentive to sort of everyone to close their eyes and be like, okay, look at us. We all you know, have these products that are being really used. Um, and that's all, that's all fake. And we're going to see this, you know, we'll see how many of these airdrops come to light, how valuable they are. And whether actually there isn't that much money to be shared across these hundreds of thousands, millions of account, accounts, or is it going to be the spark of a whole other wave of interesting crypto? That's kind of the more cynical side. I think on the other side, looking at it is um, we're building like really novel technology, like um, layer twos, you know, Rhino before Diversify, we were one of the first teams to launch a layer two. So I know it's really hard. And so I really sympathize with these companies which are launching layer twos, layer ones, and so on. 
And that's really hard to do from the perspective of it's brand new tech. And you also need to build this incredibly big network effect of users and builders and so on from ground up, so which is really hard. Um, and so they do need people to come and test this, right? Like they do need users to test these systems in production. We do need to be putting them on their load and seeing how they work. Uh, because, yeah, now sort of years after the launch of the first layer twos, we're seeing how all these different designs are actually panning out and actually how they work and how efficient they are and so on. So we do need people to to test this and, and to test this activity. And you can kind of see this as like a lot of venture capital money is going to entrepreneurial people from all around the world, emerging economies and so on. There are they've put effort into learning this stuff, they're tech savvy. Um, you know, we speak with a lot of our users and hence a lot of the airdrop hunters, and you know, they're entrepreneurial smart people from like all sorts of different walks of life and places around the world. So we're seeing uh, all this funding going into the hands of these people, essentially for testing and making these systems more robust, which is kind of a cool phenomenon, which like you don't really see happen in many um, other industries. So they're kind of these like opposing ways um, to look at airdrop hunting. But that's um, a good way to view it, I think. Uh, and then you have the whole other side of uh, which it's also a spectrum of how much care goes into the design of these airdrops, because it's very easy for uh, just to name a couple of these projects, CK Sync, Layer Zero, I don't know, even like the the bots on Twitter keep telling me that there will be a MetaMaster airdrop. <laughs> so mm. these, these projects, like they can either choose to just reward everyone based on something very simple like holdings or try to take into account the dynamic of airdrop, airdrop hunters themselves and consider that a lot of these users might be bots and try to take into account that to reward some kind of specific activities that are more human-like first. Yeah. So that, that that's pretty interesting. And it gives us a very good, um, well, like you said, it's novel technology. It's a field of experimentation playing out live. And a lot of them will probably go bad, but we will certainly yeah. le learn a ton from this time and come up with something better, just like we did with ICOs. <laughs> like it was a whole shit show and then eventually we came up with a couple of things that did work yeah i think actually uh the sophistication of the airdrop criteria is like a really interesting point and if you think about the first airdrops like uniswap and compound and so on it was literally like have you made a transaction once did you yes. use us yeah um and then something like you know arbitrum and celestia you know gets gets a lot more complicated so it, you know it has a bit more of a sort of fair quote-unquote distribution of these um but this it reminds me a little bit of the development of the youtube algorithm i don't know if you follow this but like you know the youtube algorithm started with like the question there is like how do you reward videos to go to the top of the feed right mm -hmm. that's sort of the reward in in youtube and at the start it was kind of pretty crude something like oh does this does it have many views and then does it have comments or does it have engagement and so on so you would see YouTubers try to play the game to like increase, you know, the views or increase the likes or the like ratio or whatever. So they would they would do all these things to uh, game the algorithm. But with time, you know, YouTube gets smarter and smarter. And like now, the algorithm is such that like almost for you to 
game it, you have to make good content. Like the only way to uh, the only way yeah. to game the algorithm actually make content that people like, which um, then you know it actually stops being gameable, but it's just sort of really well liked. So, and I think now with with airdrops, the criteria gets so sophisticated that it's almost like you kind of have to be a real user to get a good airdrop. You know, like it's it's hard to um, be. Um, I think it will be very hard to be a fake user um, and fool the sophisticated system the systems that these um, um, uh, airdrop filters will have. Because yeah, some of these you mentioned, there's literally millions of accounts uh, farming them. So the, you know, the, there isn't the amount of money to give people meaningful airdrops if all of these get rewarded, right? Like there's there's only so much. You will also have, I reckon, a couple of um, of projects do this really well in in ways that uh, pave the way. For example, Gitcoin. Um, for Gitcoin, it was very straightforward to do their airdrop because it was okay. Have you given money to funding public goods? So yeah. that's a criteria that disqualifies any kind of like selfish um, airdrop hunting on its own. Um, but to to throw away from the topic of airdrops a bit and go back to go back to products and and Rhino, um, you mentioned the layer two, and I was actually pretty interested about that. Um, it's not super common to see aggregators or DeFi products also go live as layer twos or have their own layers. Uh, what motivated that decision? I guess from a product standpoint, but also from a creative point of view, how do you land at that decision? Yeah, so there's a bit of backstory to that decision because you know Rhino is a company that's been around for four and a half years. Um, so if we go back to 2019, which is when we when we started Rhino, 2019, uh, at the end going into 2020, um, our vision was um, then was mostly focused on uh, swapping and trading, mm -hmm. and we were like, okay. DeFi is is becoming possible. Like we 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 are able to do these things uh, with self custody now. Like we don't have to be on centralized exchanges because, again, in twenty twenty that was new. You know, like for the first time we could do all these things on chain. Um, but we were like, okay, how do we build a good swapping and trading product when the limitations of Ethereum were slow blocks, uh, gas, even then was getting expensive, and your activity is public, which is a you know front running and so on is a is an issue. So then the answer for us is how can we make a product that is good uh, and is like and can give you the trading and swapping experience you can get now on a centralized exchange, but with self custody. And the answer was some sort of scaling solution. And we looked at like various ones, um, and you know some of the ones that we were looking at have now look you know, very obsolete, like Bitcoin state channels and plasma mm. and stuff like that. And in the end, we decided to go with um, StarkX, which is a product by Starkware, uh, which again was very novel. That was their sort of, we were their first integration partner. Um, and so that's kind of the reason why we decided to go with a layer two so that we can actually build a product that has a, um, a good user experience. Um, now, then... As we, uh, as DeFi took off, we saw a lot of that happening on 
um, Ethereum and then, you know, other layer twos launched as rather than sort of attempting to do what we're doing, which is called like a DAP chain, you know, like one layer to one platform, one, one app, uh, you know, we see uh, layer twos, uh, you know, being sort of like ecosystems themselves. So that's when our kind of bet on layer twos kind of was true. That, that was the way in which um, Ethereum scaled and people were using them, but it wasn't in the way that we had executed, which is a DAP chain. Um, and so then we were like, we actually, if we, if we sort of keep going down this road, we're going to remain on a, our own, our own island in the middle of the ocean, like kind of separated from everyone else, um, which is why then we pivoted into this cross-chain strategy where now our island is connected to 14 other blockchains uh, and moving between them is extremely easy. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of how we ended up having that as the middle of our um, infrastructure. And um, I mean, hindsight's 2020, but how, how do you, do you think that decision could have been different? Do you think it was the best possible decision at the time, taking into consideration how it ended up playing out? Well, I think it's, I think it's hard to tell. I think the, it would be easy to say that you should sort of focus on one problem at a time. And we were focusing on building our app and also building the scaling. And, you know, mm -hmm. like a lot of other platforms were like, we're just going to focus on building our protocol and someone else is going to solve the scaling. And that did essentially happen right now. Um, you see like Aave, for example, deployed on 10 different chains um, because, you know, they focused on building a great protocol that then, you know, you can scale with other, with other things. Um, but at the same time, um, what helped us get to this position of uh, building this bridge between all these layer twos that works really well is that we were one of the first teams to build the layer two and sort of went through a lot of, uh, you know, early tech pain and know how this works. So when the moment came to leverage layer twos, we were like, okay, we know, we know how to do this. We know this front to back. So uh, it gave us this advantage at, at this time. So as you say, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it all, yeah, you can always make the best of what you have. Uh, I think I think a lot of times you do well. Actual real entrepreneurship does look like that. You start trying to solve one problem, and then you realize there's another bigger problem that's happening elsewhere, and you just have to tackle that. And hopefully, other people also need what you are trying to trying to do there. Um, I think what I what I've heard a bunch of times from you during this talk is that we you're very focused on building the best possible DeFi product or DeFi experience from your user for your users. So I reckon mm -hmm. in the back of your mind somewhere there has to be the idea that okay this needs to attract a non crypto native audience. This has to be able to bring new users into the mix and cater to people that are very new to the new to the this environment. Um, what's your what's your strategy like to tap into the, that kind of users or to to appeal to those users let's say yeah so i think this is um this is a really good question i think um when we look at how do we get more users to use defi they're kind of like two sides one is the push and the other one is the the sort of the uh, the barriers and the motivation so 
Um, and I think when we speak about UX in DeFi and so on, a lot of people focus on the barriers. So we can be like, oh, well, the, the products are a bit clunky and the ecosystems are confusing and wallets are hard to use and transactions are confusing and all that stuff, which is which is true. That That is true. Um, but I think that is something we can solve. And I think, to be honest, I think there are products which solve these things really well, but they end up not taking off because for early adopters, those things are not a problem. Mm. Um, but the other thing is the motivation. So what is the motivation of these users to come and use these products? And I think that's where we're not sort of focusing enough uh, because DeFi is still a bit separate from um, the real world, so to speak. We don't yeah. have enough like real world um, applications. I think we are starting to see that happen. And in 2023, we have seen a lot of growth in emerging economies and developing countries using using crypto. Um, and that's, I think, where the growth uh, is needs to come and uh, for us to see another, another bull market. And I'm sometimes a little bit disappointed when you see like mainstream media being like, oh, no one's using crypto, uh, you know, crypto price is dead. And I'm like, yes, if you're in downtown New York or London, people are not using crypto, but like, it's not for you. Like you're, you know, someone sitting in London complaining about no one's using crypto. I was like, you're in the place with like the best financial infrastructure ever. Like mm -hmm. you have basically free banking applications that you can send money to your friends instantly for free. And you can the get like five contactless cards. Yeah. Yeah, everything is contactless. You can have like a contactless watch. Like it's it's incredible. So like, yes, for these people, crypto is not interesting right now. But for many people around the world, it is. And I find that sort of rewarding when we speak with users um, who are in countries where their financial system is broken. Like, for example, we have users from Turkey and they're like, yeah, I can now sort of hold dollars and get, uh, move them around easily and get some interest on them, which might seem trivial to someone in Europe or in America, but not trivial to billions of people. I don't know what it's like uh, where you are in South America, how easy that is. But I know that, you know, for example, in Argentina, probably uh, even just having a stable currency is like, you know, great value of that. Exactly. Um, no. uh, go ahead. Yeah. So I was going to say, I think the we, we, we are starting to see the motivation from uh, for, for some use cases, but I think in DeFi and DeFi companies, we need to start focusing on that more to grow past this local maxima. Um, I think these real are these real applications are sort of not spoken very much in our sort of Twitter sphere and and what people people are worried about. Yeah, the, I I I think you're very much right. I lived in Argentina for a while. I, I live in Mexico currently, which Mexico is pretty decent when it comes to that regard. The currency is pretty stable. Um, stuff's been relatively quiet for for a few years, but. In, in Argentina, like the currency is plummeting 24 seven. So you bet that having your stable coins is a big difference. Um, I also reckon that when people have made that jump from, I had to learn about crypto and I had to learn about these tools to be able to preserve my wealth, um, which is a higher priority level than just being a DGN wanting to earn some yield. Yeah. Um, then you are somewhat more open to the possibility of staking them, trying to get like an, a couple, well, trying to make 
earnings not only be able to preserve your wealth, but also like preserve it against the dollar's inflation, other types of inflation. I think that's that's pretty important. Another catalyst of possible growth for crypto applications, obviously considering that we always have the friction that people need to learn about crypto before actually start using DeFi, uh, is precisely that, inflation. Um, th mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on any macro um, events or catalysts that might bring more users to to DeFi dApps and products. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not a I'm not an economist or a world leader, so I I'm not going to sort of, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to make any uh, sort of grand predictions about that. But I think, um, you know, within within a sort of two, three, five year time horizon, these things seem like big events you know like the fact that we now have such high inflation or something like that but if we look at you know a 20 30 40 year time horizon especially in different countries there are many events you could point to which might be catalysts for this um so i think if we focus on building good products and focus on these real world use cases um that will happen i don't think there's like one magic thing that's going to happen that's going to cause these things like sometimes you hear people being like oh we need like one banking world collapse to happen and then crypto will take off and you're like well that's unlikely right and also that's not a good way to think about it. like we need to build something that's better not to like wait for the current thing to be broken to replace with something else for sure and we're almost uh, at the end of our time here, I gotta say, really, really enjoy the chat. So, do you want to to tell people where they can find you, where they can find your project? Uh, yeah, sure. So, the best place to get started is to find us on Rhino.fi. Uh, yeah, Rhino.fi. Um, so, website you can find out all about us. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I get at Rhino.fi or head straight over to our bridge at app.rhino.fi um, and sort of experience it for yourself, um, see what it's like, and uh, let us know if you think it can be better in any way in our Discord. Is there anything in particular that you would recommend people to try out that you think you've really nailed in your product? Um, I think the... Well... So it's it's like favorite it's like choosing between your favorite children. Um, I think the main thing I think the main thing to 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 try out um is our bridge, uh, which which works very smoothly. And we recently have launched some sort of like less traditional uh paths amongst our competitors, like going to Starknet um and places like that. Um, that's definitely the main use case. One of the other things I would recommend trying is, um, trying out doing a a swap. Or a, or a yield investment on the platform to a cross-chain opportunity, which is um, currently sort of less popular in this environment, but I think gives you a taste of what uh, abstracting chain complexity could look like. All right. Yeah, do try that out. And well, thank you very much for your, for your time, Dan. Really appreciate it, man. Perfect. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. And yeah, it was a good, uh, it was a good conversation. I enjoyed it. Likewise, man. Likewise. Okay, well... Thank you very much also for listening and bye-bye.